what we talked about was the virtue of dependability. That when you think about it, you in your life have declared all sorts of I have decided statements. Maybe it's in marriage, maybe it's in parenting, maybe it's in employment, maybe it's in some sort of volunteer capacities, maybe something in the community, something where you pledged such and such, and in so doing, it is an I have decided. Now, why this is important to us is because Jesus teaches us the kind of people that we ought to be. And what he'll tell us on the Sermon on the Mount is, is that we should be the kind of people that when we say yes, everyone around us knows it's a yes. And when we say no, everyone around us will know it is a no. Because of the integrity of our lives, because of our honesty, because of our character, we don't need to swear to this and swear on that. When we give our word, people can depend on it. It is the virtue of dependability. And as we continue that conversation this morning, I want to talk specifically about our commitment to follow after Jesus. The I have decided when it comes to we want to be followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to do that, let me begin by saying I recognize that really it's one of life's greatest gifts and at the same time it's also a great source of irritation and that is that every one of us are completely different in regards to personality. Like the person sitting next to you most likely is different than you in a whole variety of ways by way of personality, probably because the world can only handle one of you. But there are some large groupings and categories that I think we all fall into by way of personalities. In fact, I'm a student of personalities. In fact, I love taking like the Myers-Briggs test. I don't know if anyone's ever done a, a Myers-Briggs, so shout out to all you ESTJs. Woo! Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Now, you know, or for the rest of you, like those Facebook quizzes that tells you what Disney character you are. I love those things. It gives you kind of a glimpse into your personality. But one of the categories is decision-making. And I think when it comes to just making decisions in life, there are two broad categories that most of us will fall in. And I recognize there's sort of a continuum in regards to that. But let me kind of describe these two different categories. And then in it, if I can get a show of hands, if you want to go ahead and reveal which one that you fit into. So category number one one personality type. How many of you love spontaneity? You love, hold on, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. Like, see, just like, I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants right now, <laughs> right? By personality, you love surprises. Like there's nothing but, oh, you feel some, that whole thing that comes up in you for the surprise, not knowing what comes next, loving all the freedom of all of your options and possibilities. You might tend to be a little bit impulsive in regards to your decisions and actions, meaning you're the kind of person who you might have, you, might have, uh, you woke up this morning and you might not have intended to, but you come home at the end of the day and you got a new tattoo, right? You're one of those kind of people, or maybe it's a new car. Maybe the perfect vacation for you is we're just going to get in the car and drive and just see where it takes us. You are often described as laid back or kind of a type B personality. So now, show of hands now, how many of you kind of fit in that category? You're kind of more laid back, spontaneous don't, don't be embarrassed by it. Raise your hand. There's no right or wrong here. Like, oh, I don't know if I should say this or not. Okay. On the other hand, another personality is you love to plan things out to the nth degree. You're always mitigating against flying by the seat of your pants, and you would rather not be surprised. Just tell me what it is that I have to look forward to. I like that better. You find freedom in rationally knowing exactly what you want to do. 
You might come home at the end of the day with a new tattoo, but it's only because you picked the design a year ago, printed it out, and had it on your bulletin board for six months to see whether or not you'd like it, and you painstakingly chose the exact tattoo artist and set an appointment six months ago. That's your personality. You won't just come home with a car unless you have researched every last article and car facts about that car. Your ideal vacation is one that you have carefully scripted every moment of the vacation so that you don't miss a single fun-filled opportunity. You are described as type A, rational, and behind your back, anal retentive. How many of you fit in that category? Okay. Now, my guess is if you are married, you probably married the opposite of you. That would be my guess. Not always, but typically if one type A marries another type A, you will kill each other is what will happen, but you'll have the best retirement plan in the history of the world. And if two type B personalities get married, you will probably lose your house just because you both forgot to pay the mortgage, just something like that. And when I think about those two extreme personalities and decision makings, I can't help but wonder, did Jesus have to deal with that in regards to people following after him? Like, did he have to deal with that continuum of both personalities who were making decisions to follow after Jesus? And my guess is, yes, he did. My guess is, listen, it wasn't that much different 2,000 years ago. You had people who were probably impulsive, and you had people who were like, "Mm -mm, Jesus, I need to know the exact plan before I commit to anything. And so I'd like to talk about this for just a moment, because if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple and follower of Jesus, then you have made a decision for Jesus, And in it, I recognize sometimes for us, we could be on the spur of the moment, impulsive, maybe a tad bit emotional in that. And I picture the same thing happening in the days of Jesus. I picture some of his followers, they began to follow Jesus because Jesus preached an awesome message and then the worship band got back up and they played Just As I Am. And after the 27th verse with the lights coming down and the right video effects on the screen, they just decided, yes. I didn't plan on following you, but you're cool, so can I join you? Right? I mean, you had those people who had that personality where, like, they watched Jesus do a miracle, like, whoo, <laughs> I'm going to follow you, like, kind of that personality involved. And on the other hand, my guess is he had those who took forever and asked a million questions. Now, Jesus, if I follow you, what kind of vacation package do we get here? Like, do we get Passover off, Yom Kippur? Are there paid vacations? I'm sure there were questions all the time, like, when you say love your enemies, like, does that mean like Brent from high school? Because he was a real jerk, and I don't know if I could go that far. So what exactly are we talking about here, Jesus, in regards to that scale? And my guess is yeah, they came from all over the place. Those who were kind of more spontaneous by way of personality and those who were uh, very rational and thought out and planned the whole thing. And this is important to us because next week when we all gather at the camp, don't come here, go to Michigan Christian Service Camp for our baptism celebration, what, will we, what we will be witnessing in symbol and sign are people who are saying, I am deciding to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And if you had to boil it all down, that is, in fact, what baptism is. This is listen, it is not some magical, magical ritual that we perform that gets us into heaven. It's not some good luck charm that guarantees favor and prosperity. It's not some legalistic requirement to get God to love you. The invitation of baptism is the invitation to publicly declare that you are a follower of Jesus, that for the rest of your life, you're going to apply to your life the teachings of Jesus. It will not be a pledge of perfection. It's just a commitment and a decision that I'm saying yes to Jesus. It is a moment 
that you'll forever get to date. You could say, August 16th, 2015, I gave my life to Jesus. It becomes a signpost that you can celebrate. In fact, Paul in his writings will often call his readers to remember and recall their own baptism as that signpost of when they gave their life to Jesus. Which I would just say to those of you pastorally, if you're a follower of Jesus but have never been baptized, you should get baptized. Or if you can't remember your baptism, it'll be hard for it to be that moment that you can recall in terms of a signpost of following after Jesus. And if you read through the book of Acts, every person who gives their life to Jesus, it's accompanied by baptism as a sign and symbol of that decision. Every last one of them, the New Testament does not understand a concept of an unbaptized believer. And so this morning, I want to help those who are making that decision next week. And at the same time, I want to ask those of you who have already made that decision to remind you of what you have decided and what you have committed to Jesus, even if your personalities are totally different in when it is that you made that decision. So let's talk about the different personality types for just a moment because I think Jesus speaks a word to each of them. So let me start with the impulsive people, the ones who kind of maybe decided to follow Jesus kind of on a whim, maybe kind of real quickly. And let me say this up front, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think there's cautions in it, and I think there's things we want to say, but don't hear me say there's anything wrong with that, even though my own personality tends to be the type A planner, like, but for those of you who are more impulsive in it, I think Jesus speaks a word to remind you of the seriousness of your decision, that even if it might have been a kind of a spur-of-the-moment commitment, it is still a commitment. And it happened to Jesus all the time. I don't know if you remember, there's a story in the Gospels where he's teaching the crowds and they're hungry, which is what happens when you teach for a long time. People get hungry, like you might be hungry now. Lunch plans? Like, and, yeah. and so what he does is, well, I've got to feed everybody. And so he says something to his disciples, and the disciples are like, we don't have any food. They're looking around, they got no food. And finally, there's a kid who brought like a little sack of lunch. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. And one of the disciples brings the kid to Jesus and says, look, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. And I think he's being sarcastic. Like, I don't think he thought Jesus was going <laughs> to watch this. Like, I don't think he meant that. I think he meant to say, you're going to have to release the crowds to go eat because we don't have anything for them. But what Jesus does is he performs this miracle where he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplies it, and the Gospels tells us that it was able to feed 5,000 and men, let alone all the women and children who were in the crowd. And when they were all done and they got the doggy bag at the end, you know, to pick up their leftovers, it was 12 doggy bags full of leftovers just from those five loaves of bread and two fish. And then what happens next? You know what happens next? The crowds want to make Jesus king by force. Which, when you're living in a day and age where starvation is a real possibility and that dude could keep feeding us over and over again, why not make him king? It sounds better than anything else we had to vote for in terms of president. And so here's what it says in John chapter... Sorry, that just slipped out. <laughs> it's not in my notes, it just came... John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 says this. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And then Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, what does he do? Notice he doesn't go, that's right, look at me, I'm the king. Like, and he is. Like, but what does he do? He withdraws again to a mountain to be by himself. He takes off. Jesus withdraws from the people because they're making an impulsive and emotional decision. What he can say is, I am a king, but not on the basis of being able to provide you food. You have no idea what my kingdom is like. You have no idea what it means to declare me as king or even what kind of a king I will be. And to keep people from making this decision impulsively without knowing what they're doing, Jesus bolts. And I think that's so fascinating. 
He isn't interested in people choosing him under false pretenses, so much so that he is willing to just bring the whole thing to a halt if he needs to and escape to the mountains. And the reason why I find this interesting is because I find sometimes in the church we could be guilty of doing the exact opposite thing. Like sometimes for the numbers and sometimes to get people to make a decision for Jesus, sometimes we can be guilty of encouraging people to make an impulsive and emotional decision for Jesus when they do not yet understand what it is that they're committing to when they're saying, I want to follow Jesus. Now, let me say this correctly so you can hear me. Like, listen, we all have different personalities. I'm not, right? Like, I'm a huge fan of church camp, huge fan. I think God does incredible things in church camp. I'm not a big fan of church camp decisions. Does that make sense? Big fan of church camp, not so much a big fan of church camp decisions. Now listen, full disclosure, I've made church camp decisions, you've probably made church camp decisions, but let me just tell you what I've tended to see. Not always, and you might be an exception, but here's what I see often. At church camp, and I've actually been in staff meetings on church camp where I've heard the leaders talk about Thursday night. Thursday night's a special night. You know why? Because you're kind of towards the end of the week, and you know what the kids are by Thursday night? Exhausted. They're sleep-deprived. They, really, they've not slept almost all week. They've had the time of their lives. They've had unique experiences and conversations, and by Thursday night, with just the right lighting and sound in the worship set and just the right emotional illustration in the sermon, you can get a kid to make a decision for Jesus. Now, I'm not opposed to a kid making a decision for Jesus. What I'd want to pull back on for just a moment is to say, yeah, but does he know what that means to make a decision for Jesus? I know that God can work in that, of course, but my usual experience is you could get a kid that's sleep-deprived and exhausted to make an emotional decision about just about anything, right? I could call for, you should only wear green socks for the rest of your life. And if I get a kid tired enough and emotional, like, oh, I'll never wear black and blue again, right? That's what, and then he goes home and he spends two weeks with his friends who wears black, blue, and white socks. You know what he does after two weeks? Why did I make a decision to only wear green socks? Like that's the same sort of thing happens all the time when I see church camp. And, and, and I'm not sure that as adults we, we should applaud that. And I'm not sure Jesus does other, does, uh, does as well. And so what you see oftentimes in religious movements is that idea of revivals and altar calls. And if you watch with music and lights and cue the fog machine, the right dramatic video of Jesus on the cross and you could sometimes get impulsive decisions like that. And what I would just simply say, not that God can't work in that, but only that it's important that we know what we're saying, what this means. That just because the hairs on your neck stand up doesn't necessarily mean that we've experienced God. And then two weeks later we ask, well, whatever happened to Tom? And he just quit coming. Nobody's seen him since. In fact, uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, you know the Billy Graham Crusades? Wildly successful. I mean, thousands and thousands of people respond to the message of Billy Graham. Towards the end of Billy Graham's career, uh, the organization began to invest a whole lot more time trying to get local churches involved in the Crusades, and here's the reason why. They could see, in terms of commitment cards, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who decided to give their lives to Jesus. But when they asked the question, well, what happened to all those people? Nobody knew. It was just sort of like they had this moment in the crusade and they gave their life to Jesus and it kind of lasted temporarily. That's, that's sort of the downside, so to speak, of sometimes making that impulsive decision for Jesus. And again, I don't want to make the mistake of saying that God doesn't work in instantaneous moments. He does, and we even see it in the Scripture. When Paul, before he gets to be Apostle Paul, he's walking on the road to Damascus, and what happens? He encounters Jesus. 
spontaneously, and he doesn't need, I need more time to reflect on this. He knows in a moment that's Jesus, right? When Jesus calls his first disciples, every one of the gospels says, as soon as he says, come follow me, what does it say that they do? Immediately, they dropped their nets and left their families to follow Jesus. And so don't hear me say you can't be impulsive. You can't make those decisions. I'm just simply saying the downside is, but there's still a cost to this that we need to count. And so to those of you who might be born on the impulsive end of decision-making, let me remind you what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 25. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it is going to ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is able, about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's just thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. You hear what Jesus is saying here? There is a cost to following me, and you need to count that. That's why he uses the analogies that he does. I'm going to get, not, I'm going to get baptized because that would be cool, and I get a free T-shirt, or all my friends are doing it, or my mom wants me to do it, or my fiancé won't marry me unless I do it. Those are not reasons to get baptized. It lacks real calculation of, no, listen, when you pledge yourself to Jesus, this isn't just some get-out-of-hell-free card. This is a commitment that you're going to live a new life. And it has implications for marriage, and for parenting, and for work, and for time, and for money, and for thoughts, and for your future plans. A decision for Jesus is not like deciding, do I prefer Diet Coke over Coke Zero? Although Jesus does prefer Coke Zero, just so you know. This is whether you look best in blue or green. Jesus wants to be your everything, or he will be your nothing. It is a vow and pledge and covenant that requires total surrender. And I know that sometimes, this is the metaphor I like to use, you've got two categories of people making decisions. There's microwave decisions, and then there's crockpot decisions, right? There's some people who kind of, man, they decide fast. What do I need to do? What's it going to be about? Got it, right? Two, 30 seconds, it's heated up, you're ready to go. Others are on the crockpot end where, you know, I need some more time just to simmer all day and then kind of, my experience is, listen, both are valid and both take place. Pastorally, the decisions that I see go the distance are the ones that were made after the crock pot consideration of what life is going to look like long term. Now, if I could speak to the rational planner for just a moment, those of you who be more type A, yes, Jesus does call us to count the cost, and you accountant personalities will have a much easier time with this than your impulsive counterparts. But let me speak a word to those of you who are more methodical and slow in your decisions. Sometimes you can be too slow. And what I mean by that is, the issue isn't really that you're just making sure you understand. The issue is you don't want to surrender and you're struggling with faith. Because while Jesus calls us to count the cost, he also calls us to, li calls us to live a life of faith. Meaning, at some point you've got to step out of the boat and try to work, walk on water. 
And I don't know if you remember the story in the gospel where Jesus is walking on the water. Like you impulsive types, like, whoo, Jesus, I'm getting out of the boat, right? And so you see Peter doing that. He's jumping out of the boat, ready to walk on water. My guess is Thomas, who's far more, you know, methodical, he's probably plotting out, like, ah, the molecular structure of H2O does not really commit to a solid, namely me. And so, right, there's a struggle in it. And ultimately, you missed the entire opportunity to walk on water because you were unable to just take a step of faith or a moment of surrender. And I personally probably would have missed the whole episode because I was afraid of taking that step of faith. And I would hide under the excuse of, well, I'm still counting when the truth is, no, I know perfectly well what this means. What this means is living a life where I'm being asked to take risks that defy, at times, rationality. It means being guided by a Holy Spirit that the Gospel of John tells us, you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going. And sometimes that can be scary. Sometimes the appropriate model for us more rational types take our time is it's just time to decide to just do it it's time to surrender and to not keep offering the excuses of well if I could just read the Bible all the way through then I think I'll be able to or if I can just deal with this one issue in my life then I'll be able to or I got to figure out whether or not me and my girlfriend are really going to stay together and if we're going to get married and we kind of get out of surrendering to Jesus because honestly it isn't that we don't know the cost we know it so well and we understand it, it means real life change that we're scared of making. And it's precisely because we understand the kingdom is calling us to a life of faith, risk, and surrender that sometimes us control freaks have a hard time not being in control. And to that, I think Jesus offers a word to us. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, that's great, but foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then he said to another man, follow me. And he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Right? That seems fair, doesn't it? Not I won't. I don't feel like it. He's going to. But his dad died. He just wants to go and have the funeral and bury his dad. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Ouch. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Like, does that seem outrageous to you? I mean, that seems perfectly normal, right? Just let me say goodbye to my family. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not going to follow you. And what does Jesus say? No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, these are hard things, but I think at the core of it, what Jesus is doing is putting his finger on yet an excuse. Uh, yeah, Jesus, I intend to, but first, that Jesus sees what is happening, he calls it out and says, it's kind of time to decide. You can't keep dabbling in faith. You either follow me or you don't. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is a moment when Jesus simply calls to us, come and follow me. And like the first disciples, we make a radical decision of faith to commit our lives to the cause of Christ and promise to apply his way of life as our own, to live by his teachings, to not only declare him as Savior, but also as Lord, and that has to mean something. But let me leave you with this. I'll close with this. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what side you're on, whether you're more spontaneous in personality or you're kind of more type A, rational in personality. What is the ultimate test is not about your personality. What is the ultimate test is your faith capacity in life. It's not whether you spontaneously decided or took some time to think about it. It is after that decision was made, did it find a place in your life where it had life and it was fertile? And it had a produce. It had a harvest. 
And in this response, Jesus has a word for all of us. And it's in Luke chapter 8, verse 4, and it's with a parable. It says, there was a large crowd that was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town. And so he tells them a story. He tells them a parable. He says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and then it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. But some of the seed fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because there was no moisture. And other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and then choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times that which was sown. And when he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples then asked him what the parable meant. And he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to others I speak in parables so that, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they cannot hear, may not understand. But here's the meaning of the parable. Let me tell you what the story means. The seed is the word of God. And those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Yet sometimes you find people who, they're like rocky ground. They're the ones that they receive the word. They get all excited, and they get all full of joy when they hear it, but they don't have much root to it. They believe for just a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. You won't see them anymore. Some people are like seed that fall on the thorns. It stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, all of a sudden they get choked by life's worries or riches or pleasures, and they don't ever mature. But there is, one out of four, some that they're like good soil. This stands for those with a noble and good heart. And when they hear the Word of God, they retain it. And by persevering, they produce a crop. So no matter what your personality is, and for those of you who are making this decision next week, and if I might remind those of you who have already made this decision, I would ask, what's the condition of the soil in your life? How is your harvest? How is the production level going? And it might be you're walking through some lean years. And some of you might go, actually, I think it's famine is where I'm at. I'm, in, I'm just in famine. To which I'd say, I totally understand that. And there are moments we all find ourselves in lean years and in famine. And when that happens in my own life, sometimes I recognize I need to go back and remind myself of the commitment I made. And sometimes it's helpful to just commit again to saying, I am deciding again to follow Jesus for the rest of my life, to do the things now that I did back then. And I don't know if you remember that when you gave your life to Jesus for the first time, remember that excitement and how joy, I mean, remember that feeling and something, remember that experience going on? Sometimes what happens in life, you just get tired, you get weary, sometimes you just get busy, sometimes you just get cynical in it. And sometimes we just need to be reminded, remember what it was like at the very beginning? We should go back to that. In fact, in the book of Revelation, uh, there's the first chapters 2 and 3, there's a letter from Jesus to each one of the churches in Asia Minor, and he'll say to one of them in Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how fall, far you have fallen. So just turn around, repent, and do the things you did at first. And then I think sometimes that's a word for us. Yeah, I used to have this with Jesus. And say, well, it's not too late. Let's just turn around and do what it is we did at first. We might find once again that passion and love and commitment that we've made to decide, I'm following after Jesus for the rest of my life. May he bless you with a fruitful harvest of life and good soil. Let's stand together. Let's pray.
God, we come to you and we are grateful that you are God who's called us to follow after your son Jesus. And so no matter where our personalities are at, we recognize there's strength and weakness in both of those. But what we ultimately desire is just to be faithful, to have the kind of lives that we recognize that when your word enters into us, that it produces, that it has a harvest, even far more than we ever hoped or imagined. So I pray that you'd empower us by your spirit to live those kind of lives, that you'd be whether you'd bless and protect those who are making this fresh decision next week that we'll all get to be a part of and celebrate, but also you'd remind those of us who've already made this decision that we're following after your son and want to do so well for his sake and for his glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.